ground zero. Do you know the expression, ground zero? I've been watching recently a movie uh, about the Chernobyl disasters uh, in Russia, the meltdown of a nuclear reactor. Many of you, though I've not been a part of them, some of our snowbirds have shared with me the ground zero effect of a hurricane. Lori and I have been to Florida in the aftermath of some of those things. Months later, it's still obvious. Here in Indiana, I've been involved in tornado cleanup. Ground zero. Earthquakes, floods, mass shootings. Most recently, the World Trade Center bombings and New York City. World Wars, Ukraine versus Russia, all have something in common. Ground Zero. I read accounts from people uh, at Ground Zero in New York City. Most of us, my generation, know where we were when the planes hit the towers. The common refrain was about the ash. There was ash everywhere. Can you feel it? You know how your day stopped. What if you were there? Everything stopped. People were in shock. People were angry. People were grieving. People were desperate. People were searching. People felt alone, isolated. The seeds of post-traumatic stress disorder were being laid into the hearts of people. And if they didn't know it, they were lamenting. Today we begin this six-week study in the book of Lamentations. I'm not preaching any particular section today. My job is to introduce the book and give us kind of a high-level overview. And then we will have five sermons, one for each chapter. We just read the Ground Zero Context. It's not in my notes, but I often read uh, the Bible on Wednesday nights in our community Bible reading. I would commend that to you this week, Monday at noon, or Wednesday at 7, we will be reading the entire book of Lamentations. It takes about a half hour. It will not cripple your week if you would like to read the entire poem, five poems, in one setting. But as I read that, I was thinking about my friends the Sowers, who I often read the Bible with on Wednesday nights. I was thinking about Exodus, all the pain and care that they took to get all that set up, and then boom, 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 we just, the whole temple carried away and destroyed. Lamentations presents a poetic response to the destruction of Jerusalem. It expresses the humiliation, the suffering, the despair of the people who are living at ground zero. So what's the main idea of the book of Lamentations? A pastor on the north side of Indianapolis, Mark Vrogop, who's a pastor of College Park Church, has written a book called Deep Clouds, or Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. He came and spoke to us um, 
our leadership team uh, not long ago. And uh, he defines lament, you might want to write this down if you're a note taker, a prayer in pain that turns to trust. A prayer in pain that turns to trust. Another summary thought for Lamentations would be, if you were going to summarize the whole book, hope and healing in the aftermath of rebellion. Hope and healing in the aftermath of rebellion. We will learn that this act of destruction was not accidental. It was not the result of geopolitical forces that just happened to play out in the crossroads of Israel. It is the actual judgment of God against his rebellious people. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote in his classic treatment of suffering, it's called The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis wrote this, you've probably heard this quote before, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but God shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to shake and rouse a deaf world. And that is what is true of Lamentations. There are five chapters of bitter grief and one quiet whisper of hope. You might turn in your uh, Bible to Lamentations, chapter 3, if you have not turned yourself there. And we'll just look together at... um, one passage that you might have some familiarity with. In order to introduce that, I should ask Brian to come up here. I should not be doing this. You guys understand this? Okay? I'm taking a risk, but the simplicity of this is what I'm after. Yes? Yes? No, not... Are you familiar? God, that sounded bad, didn't it? Yes? Yes? No. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Chapter 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall, cultural expressions of bitterness and pain. My soul, is conti- my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down before me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Amazing truth that the song we sing and love, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. 
Your mercies being new every morning. Where do we find them? At ground zero. And if you've not heard the punch of hope in the contrast of the darkness of pain, then you have not felt the intent of God for those words, although you've loved them your whole life. You could hear them even more loudly and more meaningfully. Five reasons why we ought to preach through Lamentations. Um, my friends at Nine Marks wrote an article. Five reasons why we might do this. They say memorials matter. I've been to D.C. recently, the Vietnam War, the Holocaust Memorial, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Brian and I have gone, took my family. What are memorials? They're designed to help people remember, to mourn a little bit, to learn. Memorials honor history. They send a message. They say that the book of Lamentations is a memorial, and we have much to learn by pausing, coming, and considering the message of the memorial. Significant events from long ago with lessons that still exist for us to learn from today. Honestly, as pastors, we deliberated sincerely about how Heather Hills as a group would respond to over a month of such a dark book. We love you. We don't bring this darkness to you carelessly. But we believe this will be a very fruitful study for the next six weeks. It is our prayer that Lamentations would change our worship, would affect our prayer lives, and give us a new perspective and language on pain and suffering. Here are five reasons that Nine Marks Ministries suggest that we should study this book along with some of my comments. Number one, it's the longest lament in the Bible. There are other laments in the Bible, the book of Job, lots of Psalms, but lament is a language that the church desperately needs to recover. They say over a third of the Psalms are minor key Psalms. You understand the reference, minor key? That's kind of a sad feeling to the music. Most Christians in America prefer triumphalism. And the American way of life is, don't tell me your weakness, get your, get your stuff together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it going. And so many Christians aren't familiar with this kind of biblical prayer language. In many churches, the congregational singing is all triumphalism, and the prayers lament nothing. The book of Lamentations demonstrates the purpose and power of turning to God, a prayer in pain that turns to God. Lay out your complaints, ask Him for help, and choose to trust it's not just a memorial to the destruction of Jerusalem that we will talk about in a moment, but it shows us how to pray when the dark clouds of suffering envelop your life. Do you have anything you're suffering? Do you know how to lament properly? I hope that you grow in that in the next six weeks. Because when we preach lamentations, hurting people will come out of the woodwork. Friends, listen to this quote I found. This is the voice of God's hurting people given back to us as a prayer language inspired by God's Spirit. This is the voice of real people in real time at ground zero crying out that God's Spirit gives back to us as a prayer language. It's profound. Number two, Lamentations displays for us the severity of sin and the holiness of God. 
This is a big theme in the book. The book's a memorial, a recounting and a warning. It rehearses the suffering and grief connected to the sacking, the sieging and sacking. You know what sacking is? The destruction. Friends, of what? Of the city of David. Theologically, this is loud. It cautions us what happens when human rebellion reaches a tipping point crosses the red line. Lamentations is a theological book. It identifies the depravity of God's people as the cause of this judgment. It declares to us that God is holy and right to discipline His people. God can even use a pagan nation to discipline His people. The book is shocking. I'm glad I don't have to preach portions of it. The book is sobering. And by preaching through Lamentations, people, we pray, will be reminded that God is serious and God is holy. Lamentations picks up this important theme. It's a theme, as I I do counseling, that I talk to people throughout the weeks. It's a theme that all of us would love to deny. I think every human being has told this lie to themselves. And Lamentations would confront this lie. And the lie is this. I can do whatever I want in the eyes of God, and it's okay. I got away with it yesterday, and I will get away with it today, and I will probably get away with it tomorrow. Sin has no consequences. That's a lie. And Lamentations is a very, very sad part of Scripture. The context of Lamentations, the structure of it, five Poems, mournful laments. And that's what Lamentations puts in front of us. It's impossible to deny this. Rebellion against God has horrible consequences. Rebellion against God has horrible consequences. Acting like you know better, you're smarter, your way is better. Friends, sometimes these things happen just in us. The consequences of defying and, de- and, de- and, 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 and rejecting God's way affect our hearts in ways that we do not even understand. And then there are times that we cross the red line, that God has had enough, and he brings the consequences of rejecting his judgment. These consequences we will see in the life of Israel, the suffering of Judah and Jerusalem under the siege of Babylon, This is unthinkable. In terms of biblical history, this is unbelievable. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple is gone. How can this happen? Here's how it happens. God warned His people. They ignored his warning. God warned his people. They ignored his warning. God warned his people. They ignored his warning. Do you understand a warning is not judgment? A warning is grace? You ever think about that? A warning is not judgment. A warning is grace. If all God was going to do is judge you, he wouldn't warn you. 
And yet all these warnings were ignored. I'm warning you today. Everyone hates guilt feelings. I think it was Ed Pallison who said, or David Pallison who said, profoundly, guilt is our friend because guilt points us to our need of Christ. We recoil from guilt. As you're reading these sad poems, it looks like God has been defeated. It looks like all of his promises has failed. It looks like all hope is lost. You ever feel that way? You have moments in your life where you feel that way? But that is not what is going on. What's going on is that God's people are experiencing the consequences and the seriousness of sin. Even that experience is grace. Even that experience is the grace of God because it confronts the lie in us that we can do whatever we want and it'll be okay. It's not okay to scream at your wife. It's not okay to look at pornography. It's not okay to mistreat your children. It's not okay to misuse your money. It's not okay to cheat on your taxes. It's not okay to be prideful and arrogant. It's not okay, yes? It's not okay. Sin is serious and has consequences. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Three, Lamentations gives us a voice in suffering. Gives us a voice in suffering. The brokenness of sin has infected every aspect of humanity. We call it total depravity. Creation itself still groans under the curse. Lamentations provides a model for how God's people can process these moments. When the depravity of the world seems to focus and laser into horrible consequences in our lives, both collectively and individually. Jeremiah was a faithful prophet. He's often thought to be the author of Lamentations. little debate about that. He warned the people about coming judgment. And when the brokenness of humanity was on full display, when sinfulness is playing out in your life, it's time to lament. It's the right response. It's the voice of sorrow. How else do we connect to God in a meaningful and honest way? It's the voice of sorrows we live between the effects of our rebellion and a glorious day when Jesus will come back. But for now, we must find a way to allow this light and momentary affliction to produce in us an eternal glory that will far outweigh it all. And lament is a part of that process. Lamentation shows us how to pray when depravity brings individual and group suffering. Number four, Lamentations gives hope. What a great thing. It's been dark so far, I'm sorry. But let me tell you, Lamentations brings hope. The third chapter, as we looked at, has this beautiful passage. Don't you love reading that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Tell me again. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. In the last decade of my life, I have worked very, very hard to try to, to, to bring a, a, an authenticity and a, and a scripture, scripturality uh, uh, to my own life. My children will tell you that there are times late in the day, my wife will tell you, I'll say, I feel like I need to go to bed. I say, why, are you tired? I say, no, this day has no mercy left in it. I need some new mercy. I want that new mercy. You feel that way? 
This is the voice of lamentations. To recognize that we come to the end of ourselves. Understanding that the, the whole of the book should deepen our understanding of our need to run to God for hope and help. Jeremiah, as I said before, proclaims the never-ending, mourning, renewing mercies of the Lord at ground zero over a destroyed city. I'm sure Jerusalem looked like a wasteland. It looked like a war zone. We read, I'm sorry, we, I mean, that's 21 verses of 2 Kings 25. Okay, my choice, not Judy's. Okay. Could you, could you feel it? How did this happen? <sighs> Jeremiah pronounces this, this I call to mind. He says, but I know this is still true. I know this is true. God has said it. It's true regardless of what I see, regardless of how I feel. The mercies of the Lord never cease. His love is never ending. Great is his faithfulness. Lamentation shows us the connection between rehearsing the truth and that hope can come if we listen to truth. Remember, it's not just a prayer. It's not just a prayer in pain. It's a prayer in pain that turns to trust. And number five, and I think this is so good, Lamentations does not end with resolution. There is no bow on this package at the end. In fact, the, the, the book ends... It sounds like it could end here. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Sound good, right? Listen to the last verse of Lamentations. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Okay. I think what those things held together explain to us is that in this life, we're not quite done ever. And they certainly weren't done yet. Chapter 3 is that center of the center of the center. Right there, mercies of the Lord. The remaining two chapters return to the reality of suffering. There is no happily ever after. There is no neat and tidy resolution. Questions remain. Tears continue to be shed. In order to know the rest of the story, you have to keep reading outside of Lamentations. It's a good story. You should keep reading. The end of Lamentations reflects the path of hardship. We believe while we're still in the dark. I saw a few people, Brian and I were uh, going downtown for lunch, and someone was leading three blind people on a city tour. They knew it because of their white canes. What it takes to trust to just have someone else guide you around the city. Even when we can't see the future, will we choose to trust the Lord? The uncertain nature at the end of Lamentations is kind of refreshing. Reminds us, like my, it makes me feel like my life is not quite finished yet. There's always something new. We say that to one another, don't you? There's always something going on. Too many people don't spend any time in this book. Too many pastors avoid it because of its heaviness. But it's in the Bible for a reason. Lamentations is a memorial. 
It matters, and that's why we're preaching it. Okay, a um, few more minutes here. Um, we don't often do this, but I'm going to surrender seven minutes of my preaching time to an online video. I could have watched the video 14 times, uh, regurgitated some things about an overview for authorship and occasion, but the Bible Project has done a great job. I gave many of you a handout as you came in. You can get one on your way out. If you didn't, it's the final project, but then you'd miss the visual. And so uh, we're going to allow the Bible Project to speak to us. It's not something we do very often, and then I will come up and finish uh, when we're done. Go ahead, Mark. The Book of Lamentations, it's a unique book in the Old Testament that contains five poems from an anonymous author who survived and is now reflecting back on the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem and the destruction and the exile that followed. Remember the whole story from the book of Second Kings. The fall of Jerusalem and the exile was the most horrendous catastrophe in Israel's history up to this point. So remember, God had promised Abraham the land. He'd given David victory to make Jerusalem Israel's capital. And from David came the royal line of kings. You had God's presence there in the temple, and that's where the priests maintained the rituals of Israel's worship. And after 500 years of all of this history, in the summer of 587 BC, the city fell to Babylon. It was all decimated and gone. And so the book of Lamentations is a memorial to the pain and confusion of the Israelites that followed this destruction. Now, the lament poems found here are not unique in the Bible. There's lots of them in the book of Psalms. And these biblical poems of lament, they do a number of things. They're a form of protest. They're a way of drawing everybody's attention, including God's attention, to the horrible things that happen in this world that should not be tolerated. They're a way of processing emotion. So in these poems, God's people vent their anger and dismay at the ruin caused by people's sin and selfishness. And these poems are a place to voice confusion. Suffering makes us ask questions about God's character and promises, and none of this is looked down on in the Bible. Just the opposite. These poems of lament give a sacred dignity to human suffering. And so these human words of grief that are addressed to God have now become part of God's word to his people. The design of these five poems is very intentional. It's part of the book's message. So chapters one through four are called acrostics, which means alphabet poems. Each poetic verse begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is made up of 22 letters. Now this very ordered and linear structure, it's in stark contrast to the disorder of the pain and the confused grief that's explored in these poems. So it's like Israel's suffering is explored A to Z and is trying to express something that is inexpressible. Chapters one and two each have one verse per letter, giving them a really similar design, but the themes are very different. So chapter one focuses on the grief and shame of a figure called Lady Zion. The poet personifies the city of Jerusalem as a widow, also called the daughter of Zion. And she sits alone. She's bereaved of her loved ones, devastated. No one comes to comfort her. It's a very powerful metaphor. And then Lady Zion speaks. She calls on the Lord to notice her fate. And through this image, the poet, he's showing that the city's destruction brought a level of psychological trauma on the Israelites that can only be expressed as the experience of a funeral and the death of a loved one. Chapter 2 focuses on the fall of Jerusalem and how it was a consequence of Israel's sin and was brought about by God's wrath which is a key word in this poem. Now, it's important to remember that in the Bible, God's wrath is not spontaneous, volatile anger. The biblical poets and prophets, they use this word to talk about God's 
justice. So Israel had entered a covenant agreement with God and for centuries they've been violating it by worshiping other gods, perpetrating injustice, oppressing the poor. And so yes, God is slow to anger, but he eventually does get angry at human evil and he will bring his just anger in the form of punishment. In the case of Jerusalem, this involved allowing Babylon to come and conquer the city. And so this poem is acknowledging that God's wrath is justified, but this doesn't keep the poet from lamenting and asking God to show compassion once again. Chapter 3 breaks this design pattern by having three verses per letter, so it's the longest poem in the book. And the voice is that of a lonely man speaking out of his suffering and grief as a representative of the whole people. And what's interesting is that this chapter is full of language that's drawn from other parts parts of the Old Testament, from the laments of Job and from other important lament psalms and even from the suffering servant poems in Isaiah. And the poet sees his hardship as a form of God's justice, like chapter 2 said. But paradoxically, this is what gives the poet hope. And it leads him to offer the only hopeful words in the whole book. Because of the Lord's covenant faithfulness, we do not perish. His mercies never fail. They're new every morning. How great is your faithfulness, O God. So I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will put my hope in him. So the poet reasons, if God is consistent enough to bring his justice on human evil, then he'll also be consistent with his covenant promise to not allow evil to get the final word. And so for this poet, God's judgment is the seedbed of hope for the future. Chapter 4 goes back to the same alphabet structure as chapters 1 and 2, and it's a vivid and disturbing depiction of the two-year siege in Jerusalem. And it contrasts how things used to be in Jerusalem of the past and how terrible they became in the siege. So children used to laugh and play in the streets, but now they beg for food. The wealthy used to eat lavish meals, but now they eat whatever they can find in the dirt. And the royal leaders used to be full of splendor, but now they're famished and dirty and unrecognizable. And the anointed king from the line of David has been captured and dragged away. So the poem's power comes from the shock of these contrasts, and it's exploring the depth of the suffering that Israel brought on itself. Now the final poem is unique because it breaks the design pattern. It's the same length as all of the other alphabet poems, but the alphabet order is gone. It's like the poet can't hold it together anymore and his grief has exploded back into chaos. The poem is a communal prayer for God's mercy. Israel begs God not to ignore their suffering or abandon them. And the poem offers a long list of all of the different kinds of people who were devastated by the fall of the city. They ask God not to forget these people, and they lament on behalf of others, giving voice to their pain. Suffering in silence is just not a virtue in this book. God's people are not asked to deny their emotions, but voice their protest, to vent their feelings, and pour it all out before God. The book ends with something of a paradox. The poet acknowledges that God is the eternal king of the world, but also that Israel's circumstances make them feel like God is nowhere to be found. And so the final words of the book leave this tension totally unresolved. It asks, unless you've totally rejected us, and the book ends. The poet doesn't offer a nice, neat conclusion, much like our own experiences of pain and suffering. The story of the Bible doesn't end here, but this very important book shows us how lament and prayer and grief are a crucial part of the journey of faith of God's people in a broken world. And that's what the book of Lamentations is all about.
Great. Hope that's helpful to you. Uh, for those of you who are purists like me, don't worry, we're not going to turn over the preaching on a regular Sunday morning basis to chat GPT or anything like that. But that is a very, very helpful uh, um, visual representation as well. To summarize some of those things, author and date, a uh, little, little unknown. Uh, Jeremiah certainly was alive at that time, and there's very similar language. And some of the earliest rabbinical traditions describe uh, Jeremiah authorship. Um, Jeremiah is a book of warning. Lamentations is a book of mourning. Uh, it's written in the aftermath of the invasion, as we said, and the deportation of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the siege of Jerusalem in 586. Can you imagine living in a small city and being under siege for two years? By the way, you may not know, if you were to read the wider context, uh, the, the historical background and the scriptures you'll find not only in 2 Kings 25 that we read this morning, but if you want to read a few things to prepare for this, it's also chapter 24 of 2 Kings. So 2 Kings 24 and 25. And the truth is, speaking of warnings, if you think that this is unfair, if you have that Americanism in you, if you have that bent of sinful pride in you that in some way wants to sit in judgment on God for his acts of judgment, There were multiple warnings. Warning after warning after warning after warning. Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Do you remember us preaching through Isaiah? Through Joel? Warning after warning. Anyway, historical background. 2 Kings 24 and 25 or 2 Chronicles 36 from a slightly different perspective or actually Jeremiah pens it as well in Jeremiah 52. Three different places in the Bible where the story is told, it must be meaningful. It would do you well to know the story. What is the type of literature? It's a poem. I will amplify and just explain. I moved through that on the video just a little quickly. So there are five poems. Four of them are acrostics, like Psalm 119. Many of you know Psalm 119. Each heading begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in sequence. Um, so if there were... Uh, if there was an acrostic using the English alphabet, how many verses would there be per chapter? Well, there would be 26, right? A through Z. But in the Hebrew language, there's only 22 verses. Okay, so chapter 1 has 22 verses. It's an acrostic. That's why we'll preach it all at one time, because it's a poem. Chapter 2, the exact same structure. One couplet per letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is a little different. It's the same acrostic structure, but there are three couplets for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 66 verses in chapter 3. Make sense? Chapter 4 goes back to the same as chapters 1 and 2, acrostic, but as he said, chapter 5 still only has 22 couplets, but the acrostic is gone. And so uh, we'll leave the different preachers to uh, speak about the uh, importance of that. They are lament poems. Can I talk about that just for a moment? We don't have a great language for lament, and I think in America, in an era of self-expression and uh, overt individualism, living in this postmodern world where everyone's truth is their truth, and you do what you want to do, no one ever questions how they feel and if they should feel that way. 
And do you know that the first question that God always asks people when they are overwrought with emotions is a why question. Do you know the story of Cain and Abel? Cain was very angry. Do you think there's anger in lament? I'm sure there is. I become angry at situations that are suffering and full of pressure, disappointing and hard. Who's the greatest counselor you could ever have if you were going to get counseled? Do you think God will do? (laughs) So do you think he probably begins at the right spot? What does he ask Cain? Why are you angry? Do you know that I believe, and the scripture would bear this out, most of the times when we're angry, we're not angry for the right reasons? You know, most of the cause of our anger is sinfully motivated. I mean, really, I know that God cares deeply when I get in the wrong line at the convenience store to get my 86-cent Dr. Pepper, and there's people buying lottery tickets in front of me. And I'm hot at the injustice in the world. (laughs) So much of our anger, sadness, fear, worry, pleasure should be questioned. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to ask ourselves, are we emoting right? The thing is, is that our emotions respond to our most inmost desires. Our emotions reveal what is really important to us. It's what we emote about. And emotions are so often sinfully provoked and then sinfully expressed because we want sinful things. Isn't that what James chapter 4 says? We desire the wrong things and we act out of those desires. Friends, I hope that our walking through these lament poems sober us up and rescue us from our first world problems. My pool is leaking. And cause us to lament the holiness of God, the lostness of people, the the injustice of things like abortion. I hope that we get focused on the things that God is focused on. Do you feel it? That's where I think our hardest work in our hearts will be done as we go through through these lament psalms or lament poems. All right, minute and a half here. We'll wrap it up. One desperate biblical theme in this whole lamentation story in the story of the Old Testament of Israel is the loss of the line of David. Here as the king of Judah is carried away and deported. Second Samuel chapter 7, God had promised David that his kingdom would last forever. That his line would not be broken. It would be eternal. Lamentations points beyond the situation of the exile to Christ in some important ways. In Jesus' incarnation, his humiliation, Jesus suffered a kind of exile. Do you understand this is the beginning of the exile? Do you know some names 
who were exiled. Hananiah. Oh, you don't know him by those names. You know him by Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. You know some of their descendants 120 years later. Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, who led the charge back. This begins the exile. Jesus suffered exile. He atoned for sin for His people. Jesus understood lament psalms in the days before His own cry at the cross. As part of redemptive suffering, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so far from saving Me? Why are You so far from the words of My groaning? My God, I cry by day, but You do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Sound like a lament? Just before Jesus went to the cross, He went to a high place, looked over Jerusalem, and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones the messengers that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sound like a lament? It's a lament. Christ's exaltation began the end of the suffering of God's people. He took David's throne. He will continue to reign. He will one day overcome all enemies. Lamentations provides the followers of Jesus with a means of expressing our immense in the conditions of life now in the present, but Christ and the kingdom of God and the exaltation of God's people, it's a sure thing. And while we continue to suffer deprivation and exile, Lamentations says that even in a world of pain and injustice, God is still good. He has done what is right. And He will rescue the exiles. And He will bring goodness to all those who put their hope in Him. I want to invite the praise team back to the platform as we finish here. There are different ways you could think about the book of Lamentations. Uh, the, the, the title Lamentations is given by uh, more contemporary organizers of the Scripture. The original title for the Hebrews was how, H-O-W. It's the first word. It's like Genesis, you know. How long? <laughs> that's, the ti- that's the Hebrew title of Lamentations. How long is this going to last? Like you're wondering right now, how long is this guy going to keep talking? But you could also title it The Exiles. Because God's people are now living, they've been carried away, they are in horrible exile. And from a biblical theology standpoint, you could think about quickly the three exiles in Scripture. Number one, the first one is in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are kicked out. They are exiled out of the garden because of their sin. You remember the story. The second one is here in the exile and Lamentations. And these prophets that talk about being about God's exiled people. Seventy years of exile. And the third one is when Jesus, the Messiah, is exiled, driven out of the walls of the city, put on a mountain of death, treated as a criminal, so that all the exiles could come home. We are pilgrims. Churches are are, are, uh, are embassies. We are ambassadors. 
All of us are born as exiles, separated from God. We are outside the kingdom of love and grace. We need to be brought home. It could never happen by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of another. Not by our goodness, but by His grace. Second Peter tells us that in the face of all of this suffering, God kept on entrusting, Jesus kept on entrusting Himself to the one who judges justly. Even for Jesus on the cross and through the ridicule and the suffering, it was not a one-time thing. He kept on trusting Himself to the One who judges justly, the One who will make it all right. You should too. A prayer in pain that turns to trust. There's hope for exiles because Jesus was willing to be exiled so that we could be brought home. Let's stand and praise the Lord for that teaching and sing about the truth. Of the, uh, of the resurrection in the Apostles' Creed song.